Hello and welcome to a new episode of On Translation. We know it has been quite a while, but we are glad to be back. Thank you for your patience. Yeah, it's good to talk to you again, Mohammed, and kind of excited. I think we have an uh, interesting topic lined up for today. Yes, today we plan to talk about translating humor. But before we start, let us remind you that the website for our podcast is www.ontranslation.org. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Well, verbal humor is often said to travel badly across space and time as it crosses geographical boundaries and historical periods. It may lose some of its potency and subtlety in the target language. But then again, it may also gain an afterlife like the translated text itself. And maybe one of the first things it would be useful to talk about, Muhammad, is exactly what we mean by humor, because it encompasses a wide variety of modalities, techniques, levels uh, of humor, and those may present different challenges to the translator. Well, the best start is always the uh, origin or the etymological uh, beginning. The term humor originally means body fluid, and it derives from the archaic view of medicine in ancient Greece which taught that the balance of fluids in the human body controlled uh, our health and our moods, our humors. Of course, we use uh, the term now to refer to funny experiences and jokes that provoke laughter and smiling. Humor in this sense can range from the physical, situational, and slapstick type of humor, the Three Stooges type of humor, which we are not going to talk about today, to the more sophisticated linguistic aspects of humor, which includes verbal humor, jokes, puns, satire, the types of humor that require an understanding of social meaning and context. Well, that reminds me of a, of a classification done by Hockett back in 1977, and he divided jokes into one category which he called poetic, and these are jokes that exploit features pertaining to language versus what he called prosaic jokes which simply make use of some aspect or another of world knowledge. And we might think of as situational, where the humor doesn't depend on specific words or word forms. Yeah, that's a, that's a famous distinction there. And I think it's uh, useful up to a point. In Hockett's view, poetic includes both linguistic and I think maybe cultural, but I don't think he talks about that much. The linguistic, uh, linguistically embedded kind of humor He claims that poetry, with its dependence on meter, rhyme, and cadence, is untranslatable. And in this sense, it has something in common with the poetic jokes, which are also untranslatable, since they are exploiting the system of language itself. Well, and that's interesting, because we also tend to think as translators that poetry represents a distinct category, which some people would say, you know, poetry is fundamentally untranslatable because so much is lost. Whereas when we think of something that's more prosaic or even on an extreme, something like a technical manual is somehow quite easy to translate. And so if humor represents both of these types, then according to Hockett and maybe some other people, that poetic type of humor, which depends on language, would therefore be untranslatable. Yeah, I don't like to invoke that notion of untranslatability. It can get a little bit uh, metaphysical. Uh, Of course, poetry is translatable. Shakespeare, Baudelaire, Dante, they all have been translated. And the same applies to so-called poetic humor. It can be translated, maybe not in the same way, maybe finding other means of compensation, but we'll talk about that. 
But I think the main distinction that you mentioned is very important here. And maybe you can spend some time on that. The kind of prosaic humor or jokes that depends on word knowledge versus the kind of jokes that depend on language itself. So let's talk about the easier category. If we think about this gradation from prosaic to poetic, it does seem that certain types of humor, particularly we might think of the lowest forms that maybe go back to the etymology of humor, the bodily fluids and bodily functions is like sexual and scatological humor. Toilet kind of humor, yes. You know, bodily humor <laughs> can somehow be translated, even though it might be interesting to think about the cultural aspects of that, whether those translate. But in Hockett's classification, at least, you would see these as not being really poetic since they depend upon language. And so we can think about the ancient comedies of Aristophanes from late 5th century Greece, that a lot of his humor is toilet humor. It's, it's very sexual, or, I mean, even basically things like fart jokes. And those are easy to translate, at least uh, on the page. I don't know if someone would say that's a universal type of humor. That Perhaps they are. I mean, we all have bodily functions and the understanding of it and the taboos that surround them might differ from culture to culture, but the function themselves are universal. We can say that, I think. Or, for example, in one of his plays, there is, at the end, a goddess, Peace, is standing there and essentially naked. These two Greeks are treating her body as the topography of Greece, and they're working out a peace treaty. And so they make a joke about, well, what about these hills over here as they point to her breast? Talk about objectification, huh? Exactly, right? <laughs> it seems to be using the body itself as a basis of a kind of humor, at least, again, on this narrow way, it's easy to translate. Although, in another sense, by equating hills with breast, you might say, well, is that always translatable, right? Is that word hills always used in that sense in every culture? Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the word culture because we talked about prosaic versus poetic and poetic pertains more to language, but maybe there is a category for cultural jokes. The degrees of acceptability of making jokes about religion, for example, or incest jokes. But even beyond that, uh, more larger structures, the framing of a joke can differ from one culture to another. Perhaps some cultures prefer brevity. You know, others can tolerate more narrative structure. So there are different typical expectations of humor in different cultures. Right. And I think sometimes what seems to be easily translatable, and again, to use Hawkins' terms, prosaic, maybe it just gives the illusion of being translatable. Again, if we think about sexual humor. So in some of his plays, a certain man may be joked about as being effeminate in some way. There's a way in which that could be considered humorous. And yet we know that sexual relations and even the idea of masculinity and femininity would differ very much from the ancient Greeks to our day. And yet we seem to be able to recognize that category and consider Aristophanes' comment humorous or the intention is humorous. And yet I would still think that even if they're humorous both for us and both for his audience, there may be a difference in the way in which they are actually humorous. Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean? Like that's a reception of the audience? Well, let's say there could be fart jokes in Aristophanes. And of course, we know in Three Stooges type humor, there are, are fart jokes. And they may both be humorous, but they may be humorous for very different reasons. And so sometimes I think the translatability of humor is sometimes illusory just because 
things are funny in two different cultures, they may be funny for very different reasons, and that can get lost in the translation. So speaking of the how humor travels and all this, one of the basic theories claim that there are always two scripts contained in any joke, and these scripts complement one another. Uh, so, for example, if someone asks, is a doctor at home? The patient asks in a coughing whisper, and the young woman answers, he's not, come right in. She is the wife of the doctor, right? So anyway, you there is some kind of expectation in the first part that are subverted in the second part. So two scripts that complement each other, but one of them is preferred for the humorous effect. Does this make sense? Yeah, and actually, that reminds me of a joke that I've read in a couple of places. It must be a, a commonplace in, in writings on humor, which is similar to the example you gave. So these two married couples both decide to engage in some partner swapping. And so they go out, have dinner, have a few drinks, and then they decide to split up and partners are swapped, go to the different houses. And then after a couple of hours of real bliss, one of the wives gets up and says, I wonder how the boys are doing next door. <laughs> it sets up this whole expectation about kind of a normative sexuality. And there's a script to it that we think is going somewhere, and then it subverts it at the very end. Yeah, so that, that, that's how humor works. Uh, you generate uh, humor based on a connection between two scripts contained in any given jokes. Do you think then that type of humor, would you call that poetic type of humor, and is that harder to translate? No, actually, that is more uh, prosaic. It's more related to the general knowledge because all humor in one way or another operates on the principle of incongruity, incompatibility, or absurdity. But the, the cultural differences might be related to the categories of script opposition that operate in one culture versus another. I think Kraskin has a pretty elaborate categorization there. For example, actual versus non-actual, normal versus abnormal, possible versus impossible, good versus bad, life versus death, obscene versus non-obscene, and so on. All these categories, oppositional categories or oppositional scripts exist, except that they are actualized differently in different cultures. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I was thinking of also maybe some then different examples that just involve words and language themselves, which therefore maybe don't have to do as much with cultural reference. And so in some sense, if these are more poetic type of jokes, we might say they're more difficult to translate at least in terms of humor. But there's another way in which they're freed of some of these cultural restraints. Let me give you an example that's really just, it's a single word from a play by Aristophanes. You can tell me if you if you think it's funny or not, and then we'll, we'll talk about the ways of trying to translate this. At the end of one of his plays, there's an invitation to this great banquet. This one individual says, oh, everybody come, let's dance, and we're going to go eat, and here's what we're going to eat. We're going to eat this dish have to be patient. This is the one dish, it's one word that he says they're going to serve. Lopado tomeko selako galio cranio lipsano dreamoto dreamata selifiroko kalabam milito kata kekuno no kikep la kosu pofato peristek la lectruo napto kefalio kinklopileo lagose rayo bafetra gonapte erugon. It's all Greek to me. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Go ahead. That's just one giant compound word made of a bunch of smaller words of smaller dishes. Right. 
in some ways, the humor is just that it's this enormously long word. Right. Um, and so how do you translate that? So in, in one version, someone tries to give a literal translation, and it just goes like this. Oyster, saltfish, skate, shark's heads, leftover vinegar, dressing, picium, leek with honey sauce, thrush, blackbird, pigeon, dove, rose, cock's brains, wagtail, cushet, hair, stewed, and new wine, gristle of veal, pullet's wings. Like, I like okay. that. Well, I like it's that. It's a string of long, you know, different disparate kinds of food. Yes. Okay. Right. But it maybe doesn't seem to give any sense of the humorousness of it, except for its its very length. So here's a different attempt, which maybe tries to translate some of the humor and is less literal in terms of the ingredients. So it's just platero, filetto, mulatto, turbato, cranio, morsolo, piccolo, acido, silfio, honeyo, poured on the top of the uzolo, frosolo, cuscito, colvero, cutolo, roastino, mario, dipero, leveret, sirupu, gildito, wings. <laughs> well... I guess this is drama, right? So we have to take into account the uh, element of delivery here. It's also, right, yeah, it's not just, a, a, it's not, a formative right, it's not written uh, as a readerly text. It's written to be delivered and the talent of the actor and the comedic timing and delivery would be factors here. I mean, I, I like both of them. Which one do you like? Obviously, you seem to have a preference here. Well, I like the second one, the one that's less literal, because I think it tries to capture some of the sing-song quality of the word and makes it a little more absurd. And just adding the O's at the end of each little word just kind of gives it this silliness, which I think the more literal list of ingredients doesn't try to do, and I think didn't, didn't intend to do. Well, I have an example from modern times here. I don't have an equivalent in translation, but I think it's really hard to translate. So it's from Douglas Adam. Uh, what is it? Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Two people are com uh, talking, and one of them says, how does it feel to be drunk? Do you think it's a, it's a pretty obvious question, but the second person flips it on its head and completely changes the meaning? And his answer was, I don't know. Ask a glass of water. Yeah, terrible. So it's the same word. Yeah, it's, well, most puns are terrible, but they are still funny in some way. So this, it's the same word. It hinges on having double meaning, drunk to be consumed or imbibed versus to be inebriated or intoxicated. Now, it's very difficult to translate linguistically embedded humor like that. Maybe you can get lucky in one language and you have a word that has both meanings, but more often than not, you will have to either lose that kind of humor or kind of compensate for it by using some means or another, right? Right, and it seems in, in most terms when you're faced with that as a translator, right, you almost have to then footnote or explain it some way or really replace it by a completely different joke that, you know, you're going to try and capture some meaning. Maybe if the point is simply that it's a pun and it doesn't really matter in that context what the content of the pun was, it's just the fact that it's a pun, well, maybe you can do that. But if you need a pun that involves drunkenness. Maybe you can find some similar pun that just involves the idea of drunkenness. But it seems probably in most cases, you, you just have to resort to a, a metatext to translate. And that suggests that maybe there are some of these poetic types of humor that uh, Hockett classified that really are untranslatable. You know what they say about explanation in terms of translation? Explanation kills translation. You, you most definitely don't want to explain... Uh, humor, or you don't want to resort to that very often, because when you do, 
you turn a lively body throbbing with vitality into a lifeless body, a corpse. And in fact, there is a famous saying by E.B. White about that. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, humor can be dissected like a frog, but the thing dies in the process, and the intestines are discouraging to anybody except those with the purest scientific mind. There is a place for it uh, if you do it once or twice, especially not in a play. Uh, and I do have personal experience with that. I work on some dramatic text and uh, anything that was humorous, I tried to find equivalence to it because glossary does not do much really, except maybe give more context to the actors and that can widen their interpretive abilities. But for the most part, it's not a strategy that works very well. Well, it's funny now that you talk about not wanting to kill in translation. It reminds me of the comment made on the translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. I think it was uh, Fitzgerald who translated it, and he was criticized for the freeness of his translation. And in his defense, what he said was, it's better to have a live sparrow than a stuffed eagle. But I, I wonder if you would agree with that in terms of humor as well as, you know, you were saying, you know, not to explain it so that it would be better when faced with a piece of humor or a joke that seems really untranslatable that you really should do anything to not explain it. The comment about uh, better to have a live sparrow than a stuffed eagle applies very well to humor because explaining humor can kill it. That's for sure. I mean, it's not a strategy that you want to use consistently. Because remember, I mean, I think for the most part, uh, humor depends on directness and brevity. An explanation can be lengthy and tedious. I'm going to give an example that is also linguistically oriented or illustrative of the poetic kind of humor. A couple of years ago, a Chinese student of mine actually asked me about a joke that was, there was an interview with the Dalai Lama. And the interviewer tried to, funnily enough, start the conversation by telling a joke to the Dalai Lama. Uh, the joke goes something like this. The Dalai Lama walks into a pizza hut place and they ask him what kind of pizza he wants. And he says, can you make me one with everything? And the interviewer looked at the Dalai Lama and the Dalai Lama was, he had a blank look. He didn't, he didn't get it. And the interviewer was like, can you make me one with everything? One? And was trying to use his hands to illustrate. Of course, uh, this joke hinges on the ambiguous meaning of the word one, which can stand for one pizza, as in, can you make me one pizza with all the available toppings? Everything means every ingredient that you have, uh, but also it can mean attaining a sense of oneness. To be one with everything could mean something spiritual, like experiencing some sort of supernatural bond with the entire universe. That's the deeper meaning. On the surface level, the Dalai Lama is asking for a pizza with every topping, right? That plays upon an ambiguity in the words themselves, right? Like, as you pointed out, one and everything. And in a way, in English, this is a common way of ordering food items. But that ambiguity wouldn't necessarily translate into other cultural contexts. Right, because it's embedded in language itself. It's a play on language. It is untranslatable in, the, in that sense that you really have to explain it. See how tedious my explanation was? You don't want to do that for jokes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Right. I wonder, though, if there is really something one could do uh, in that situation. And I think maybe there is, but I think you're more optimistic about these these situations than I am, because you could translate that phrase literally, I think, without too much problem. There's no 
real punning involved, just making one with everything, but it may not have that same resonance. And so what do you do in that case? That's where I would push a little more, and I know you don't like this, but towards a kind of untranslatability. But untranslatability may just be a way of saying, I, I lack the ability or I lack the uh, resources in order to make that, if not successful, at least not a complete failure. But remember what I said at the beginning, that I don't really subscribe to this notion of untranslatability. I think everything is untranslatable. When people invoke this notion, they probably mean something like it's difficult to translate or does not have an equivalent word for word, right? And that happens quite a lot. Right. And presents exactly the same challenges as translating a poem itself. Uh, Muhammad, how important do you think it is in translating humor to still be funny in the target language? Is that the fundamental thing you want to get across? Is that why you need to be creative in terms of translating humor, not be so liberal? It's because what you really want to do is to get the humor itself across. Absolutely. I would say being funny and, and, and conveying that sense of laughter to the audience, the readers or the listeners, is a raison d'etre of humor. So you don't want to lose that. And maybe when it comes to this kind of humor... We could possibly talk about untranslatability or difficulty or different degrees of challenges. I think you're giving a little ground there, Mohammed. I, I like that. I like that. I think to summarize what we have said so far, we can divide jokes or humors into three categories. The general word knowledge category, which is perhaps the easiest to translate things that tend to be more or less universal, even the, if they might be understood differently in different cultures, sexual jokes and bodily functions and, and, and so on. We have uh, more culturally embedded jokes, how you frame a certain joke. You know, do you start by saying, have you heard the one about this or that? There are certain frames that tend to be dominant in certain cultures, and sometimes you have to change the frame in order to prime the audience that what you are about to say is a joke. And also there are the most difficult aspects are the linguistically embedded kinds of humor or jokes, puns, wordplay, verbal witticisms, double entendre, and so on. These are the kind of humor that basically owes their meaning to the exploitation of the structure of the language itself. And with that, I think we can wrap up this episode. Follow On Translation on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, or also visit ontranslation.org.